Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. Happy Martin Luther King Day. It's a time to reflect. Time to think about where we've come from and where we're headed. I first learned about Dr. King in second grade. We talked about his I Have a Dream speech. And I remember learning about civil rights in third grade. And really just kind of having that as a backdrop for a lot of my elementary school years. And then as an adult, going to the Civil Rights Museum in Memphis at the Lorraine Motel where Dr. King was assassinated and going to his monument on the National Mall, which is pretty significant. And I remember the first time I went there, it was a rainy evening. I had been in D.C. for work and the monument was newly open and I felt like it was important to go and check it out. It's this giant, probably four-story, three, four-story statue of Dr. King surrounded by marble walls with some of his quotes inscribed in these walls. And the one that I always remember, and of course it's a famous one, but the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I hope as we look ahead to this coming week with Joe Biden getting inaugurated and Kamala Harris coming into office as well, that we are moving closer to that justice. Already, just having Trump off of Twitter has been like this crazy weight off of my shoulders. And I think for a lot of Americans and probably people around the world, it feels that way. And I just hope that we are entering a new era and that we may actually be able to make some progress towards a lot of things that have haunted this country for a long time. Racial justice, gender equality, raising the minimum wage, helping the environment, climate change. There are all these really pressing issues that I feel like we've spent four years just ignoring and letting get worse. And I hope that a cure is around the corner. I really do. I don't know that the white supremacy violence that we saw earlier this month is going anywhere. I hope it doesn't flare up this week or, you know, in the coming months. I hope people start realizing that we are all human. We have a shared humanity. And we just need to get along and share this planet. That's my uh, soapbox moment for today. Ray Smiling is my guest today. Ray is really interesting. I had a really fun time talking with him. His day job, he's a creative director at an ad agency, and he's been at a couple different agencies in his career. Uh, Creative director is what Don Draper essentially was on Mad Men. It's the people that come up with the creative treatment for how an ad or an ad campaign is going to run? What are the visuals? What does the script look like? You know, all that kind of stuff. So Ray does that as his day job, but he's also a director and a filmmaker. And he has a really interesting series that came out during this quarantine time called Khaki is Not Leather. It's something that he worked on with a friend of his, uh, Coin Ayuba, I think is how to, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your last name, Coin, but um, they came up with this incredible six-part short series, and it takes a look at dating, sex, relationships, intimacy, all that kind of stuff during this time, during the pandemic. It is definitely a series that I think, you know, the young people would say is not safe for work, but it's it's sensual and it's erotic, but it's not pornographic in any way. It's it's probably a PG-13. It's not not an R or an X. And you'll hear from Ray why he made the decision to tell the stories that way. But there's also a production piece that fascinated me, which is this entire series 
was shot completely remotely. The actors were lighting themselves and acting in front of a camera. Ray was directing remotely. He had art directors and costumers and, you know, all these different people helping set a look for this project completely remotely. And that is super fascinating to me and is really in the sweet spot for the show. So we talk a lot about the technique. And then, of course, we talk a little bit about his job as a creative director and what advertising has done to influence his work and just his creative process when it comes to that. So go check out Khaki Is Not Leather. You can stream all six short episodes at khakiisnotleather.com. The shortest one is probably around three minutes. The longest is around six minutes. I think you can watch all six in under a half hour. So it's an interesting look at everything that's happening right now. And I had an interesting time. Here it is, my conversation with Ray Smiling. So let's start with just sort of the big picture, I guess, of, you know, these last 10, 11 months, whatever it's been, this whole quarantine pandemic time. What has that period been like for you? You know, it's weird because like everyone in the world, you know, sort of talked about like, oh, I'm going to have so much time. I'm going to watch all of Netflix. I'm going to read all the books. (laughs) And, you know, I'm so bored. And I had the exact opposite experience where things just got like exponentially more busy Uh and especially the first like month or so of quarantine like things just got like so busy that it just became crazily stress inducing and weirdly like my jaw locked from like Mm. stress which is a a new phenomenon for me and um i definitely thought i had covid even though that's not anywhere near a symptom but you know hypochondria Uh, (laughs) but it's been you know like super busy for me but it was also again especially at the beginning part sort of a thing where I was like hey like the world you know has stopped so to speak and I very much was like if I don't do something in this time where like you know in the beginning we thought oh we're gonna be it's gonna be two months right or it's gonna be two weeks or whatever I was like if I don't take this time where everything is sort of slowed down theoretically, to like do something, whether that's write a script or try to make something or whatever, then I'm going to feel like I'm going to kick myself, you know, in in the butt for that. So yeah, it's been a weird time. I mean, which is the grand understatement of of this whole experience, but it's been a weirdly busy, chaotic time for me. Yeah. Um, Well, I want to talk about this project, Khaki is Not Leather, uh, but I know you also have a day job, like working, uh, you you work for an ad agency, right? Like as a creative director. So how much of sort of the busyness that you're talking about, how much of that was your regular day job and and how much? No, it was the day job. Okay. Gotcha. It it was the day job. Yeah. Um, And it was just, you know, all sorts of, I mean, whenever you just have uncertainty, then, you know, things just become chaotic because no one knows how to respond to the unknown. And so it just became a lot of, you know, trying to figure out, well, we had planned on doing this thing that would be, you know, launching for the Olympics. Like we were, I was in the middle of making stuff for the Olympics when the pandemic hit, you know? So it was like, can we save that? Are right. the Olympics still going to happen? Well, they didn't get canceled right away, right? I mean, that was right, like, yeah. it, it, okay, maybe by the summer we'll be okay. So Yes, and so it became a lot of that. And so it was like, all right, cool. Well, if the Olympics are pushed back a month, yeah. can we just tweak this? Or if they don't happen, can we repurpose this thing? And so it just becomes this, you know, where you might have just shot the thing and put it out if the Olympics were happening, but now you're just like rejiggering it and rejiggering it and rejiggering it again, again, again. And this just makes more and more chaos yeah, you know just 10 different contingency plans 
Yes, lots of contingency plans. <laughs> um, so that that drove me a little bit crazy. Was that yeah. all in pre-production, or like had things? Was it? Oh also no, we had like... we had started shooting stuff. Oh, yeah, geez. like we were on sets, you know, and like we it was like really like production nightmares of like, oh, we're supposed to go fly to this place to meet this person. Well, can we have them come here? No. Are they too old to go anywhere? No. Can an athlete be, you know, can they risk being exposed to something when they're supposed to be in the Olympics in three months? You know, like all of that sort of stuff just became nightmarish. I feel like just on the messaging side too, and, and maybe this doesn't affect the, the footage you shoot as much, but you know, the, the voiceover and things that go with it, like there was that shift that started to happen like late spring, I guess, where, you know, uh, advertisers and, and, you know, manufacturers and things realized they needed to adapt the messaging. And there was that period of, you know, we're all in this together and, yeah. you know, like <laughs> that just must've been strange to. to yeah. That, there yeah. were, there was a lot of writing against, you know, those things and trying not to write the same ad that everybody else had written and try to say something. But at, at the end of the day, I, you know, I don't know how much you really want to hear from, you know, the company that makes your sneakers or your beer about like how we're all in this together. And like, our, I don't know, dude, like your Budweiser, I don't know what, what you're doing for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a challenge, I'm sure, to figure that all out. But, you know, yeah. I, I want to talk about Khaki is Not Leather because it's such an interesting project. And it's, you know, it's sort of what I love leaning into on this show of just people that, you know, as you said, just figured out, like, we've got to do something in this time. We've got to make something. Like, talk to me, I guess, about just the origin of that project. What What first made you want to get involved with it and, you know, do something with that? When the pandemic hit, like, I guess before the pandemic hit, um, before quarantine was a thing, I am not like very much a person who just gabs on the phone, you know, like I'm really sort of bad at keeping up with people who aren't, you know, in my immediate sphere, you know. But once the pandemic hit and I'm just in my house all day, every day, I'm just calling people up, you know, (laughs) and it's like, hey, let me talk to my college roommate for an hour and a half, you know. So I'm just having very long conversations with you know all sorts of people that i i know and coin is a a good friend of mine we used to work together and so one day we were just shooting the shit as it were it was the the week that like Pornhub announced that they were giving away like Pornhub for free Uh like as a as a a service to the world yeah which (laughs) you know cool and so that was just like in the news me people were making memes about it and we're like cool and we had started discussing that and it, it, the sort of joke that we had landed on was like, well, if Pornhub has been around for however many years it's been around and we've all been using it for free, like what were they hiding behind the, the paywall? <laughs> yeah, you know, right. like that's got to be the weirdest of the weird stuff. And so we just started joking about like what weird fetishes exist and, you know, all sorts of things like that. And very quickly that conversation sort of, dovetailed into like fetishes as a as a means of like connection yeah and like an exploration of self and desire and power trips and and all sorts of things and i think the where it really clicked and we were like this is maybe something that we should explore this maybe something we should do is when we were just sort of thinking about the fact that like you can't jump on tinder you can't go out to a bar even if you have someone who you're seeing who's not, you know, like barring that you live with this person, you're kind of scared to even like 
you know, get in a, a lift and go over to somebody's house because sure. what if they've got it and this, that, the other. So I was like, what would be the next closest thing that you could get? And sort of cam girls or cam boys came to mind as like the closest approximation you could get where it's like you're one-on-one -on -one talking to someone, they're a live human, they're reacting to you, but you could still get your jollies off. Right. And so that world became like a very interesting medium for us. Yeah. And then we started like overlaying kink into it and then overlaying these different emotions that people like we were thinking that people were experiencing just from, you know, talking to people and stuff that, that we were experiencing. And it just became this whole thing where it's like, this is a really interesting topic. Like even without quarantine, it's, a, it's still an interesting thing. Yeah. But then I think it was just like, we we're like, I, I specifically was thinking production wise. I was like, yeah, I can make this now right. because if I'm faking, you know, two people talking to each other by camming, that should look pretty much exactly like it looks when they're actually doing that. Right. So I was just like, yeah, this is something that we could pull off. It turned out to be a lot harder than I initially thought. But uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we were able to pull it off like that. It's interesting. I've heard you describe in other interviews uh, that it was almost a bait and switch too, that like the device are these cam girls and cam boys and you go into it thinking it's going to be, you know, kind of salacious. And then they very quickly, the sexual piece doesn't fully fade away, but it, it, it morphs into something else very quickly. And, you know, some of these arcs are three and a half minutes. Like you switch yeah. gears very fast on people. I wonder just sort of the choice to, to go that route. I, I mean, to me, it was, and, and this might be holdover from, you know, the fact that I have worked in advertising was I was just like, most people don't want to just watch a philosophical discussion of the, you know, existential pain and suffering they're experiencing right now. Yeah. That's not fun. That's not a good headline to spread around, you know, <laughs> but if you add sex onto things, then people are either immediately interested or immediately revolted. Yeah. But at least they're curious. You've got, you've at least got their attention, right. you know? And so I just really thought that wrapping it in sex would be a good way to get people to pay attention to it. And then, like you said, yeah, it's it, it's a bait and switch sort of thing. But I wouldn't say it's a full bait and switch because it's not like these are left turns where it's just, you know, hey, sexy, sexy, sexy. Let me just talk about politics. You right. know, it's not that it's like every kink that we are deploying is connected to the person's story and the emotional arc of it. And it's all very intertwined together so that it, it like you said, it, some of these are as short as like three minutes. I think the longest one is like six minutes, but it should feel natural. And like the way conversations actually flow between two people who are being intimate in whatever degree. Yeah. I, I want to ask too, just the idea of doing these as six individual shorts, as opposed to, you know, one longer form narrative or something like that. Like, why did you decide to break it up that way? How did that uh, decision process happen? Um, I, I think it was the breaking it up was just that it felt like these were such discrete stories with discrete, I don't want to say problems, but like issues that each person was dealing with or like fears. Yeah. I think fear was a lot of, of a driving factor. And so like putting them together, like it, it works. You can, you know, I've, I have an edit where I put all, all of them together back to back. But I, I think the sort of anthology sort of delivery system 
makes it so that you can f fully engage with one individually. And I also, you know, I am a, a, a child of the internet and I know that people do not have a long attention span. Right. And so if, you know, if, if you know me and you know that I make good stuff and I'm like, hey, watch this thing that's 20 minutes, sure. But if you don't know me from Adam, you know, and it's like, hey, watch a thing that's three minutes. All right, cool. I can, I can give you three minutes. And then if I like it, I'll, you know, keep going in for more. But right. I didn't fear of um, attention, you know, fatigue. Well, even like the, you know, the 20 minute thing, it's like, even if you're a good friend of mine and you send it to me, it might take me a week or two to get around yeah. to that. But if it's three minutes, like the minute I see it come in, I'll be like, okay, yeah, what is this? And, and as you say, yeah. if, it's, if it's good, you keep going and, you know, follow it down the rabbit hole, so to speak. Um, I, I'm curious, just in thinking about sort of that short form, uh, just the world of the internet, I guess. And, you know, you did a very high quality piece that is is clearly directed and, you know, has, has a lot of thought behind the edit and stuff. But you're also competing with everything else on YouTube that, you know, mm -hmm. and Instagram and whatever, where it's, you know, people turning the camera phone on themselves and, you know, talking in a vlog or things like that. Like, I, I'm just curious, like thinking about, I, I guess, that that space now that things aren't half hour shows or two hour movies anymore. There's just, you know, digital media has opened up our expectations, I guess, of what content looks like. And yeah. just, you know, I, I guess why, why make high quality digital shorts when, you know, there's, there's cheap vlogs and things being made out there as well. As someone who makes things, I am definitely more drawn to the Stanley Kubrick, you know, sort of like, I'm going to take five years to make this thing. Yeah. Um, and it's going to be perfect and every little detail that da, 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 da. if I had all my druthers in the world, that's what I would be doing. And just like finessing everything. Yep. But that's not the world that we live in. You know what I mean? Like very few people have that luxury, you know, like you lose people's attention very fast. You know, you're competing with literally everything that has ever been recorded, be <laughs> right. it music, podcast, film, TV, cartoons some dude getting hit in the balls with a football, you <laughs> right. know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so for me, it's that like keeping it short guarantees to a certain degree that I can buy for your attention, but the quality, I, I can't let go of, I can't let go of quality. I can't let go of intention because for me, then I, I, I don't feel like I'm really having a strong authorial voice. Yeah. If I'm just like putting, just ma just spamming, you know, the world with sure. stuff. So I, I, I'm sort of trying to be contemporary with the shortness, the succinctness, the punchiness, but still give it as much quality and love as I would if I had spent, you know, 10 years on it or whatever. Yeah. And it's a it's a tough dance, I know, as a creator, like the 100 percent that you're going to reach for yourself or, you know, you may never quite get there, but call it the 99 percent that, you know, you're going to make yourself happy with and it's going to take you 10 years to get there for an audience member the 90% or the 85% version is probably going to resonate just as strongly. Just and, as much. Yeah. yeah. And like, it, it's, it's giving yourself that, that freedom, I guess, to be like, you know what? Like I got to let it be its own thing now and be out in the world. Like, do, do you, yeah. do you struggle with that as well? Oh yeah. And you know, I, I think perfectionism is a thing that is common amongst creators, artists, whatever you want to, however you want to phrase it. Um, but I also, when I take a step back, I realize that that's also a crutch to a degree, mm. you know what I mean? Because you're afraid that you're going to put the thing out, people are going to laugh at it, or no one's going to pay attention to it. And so if I only refine it a little bit more, yeah. no one will ever laugh at me, no one will, you know, find a, oh, there was a thing in the frame, you know, like, right. 
what was it? The Mandalorian, like uh, maybe a couple months ago, there was like a shot where there was a guy, you know, in normal clothes in in the frame. But guess what? No one gave a fuck. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like it was a joke on the internet for a day. And then everyone was like, no, but that episode was still great. So that's what we want to talk about. And like the one guy that noticed it, that screen capped it and put it on Twitter, like, you know, nobody, you know, of the millions of people that saw it, nobody else even that didn't register. No one else even paid it. Yeah. Um, so to me, it's always thing that battle between like, put things out, let it be out in the world and do what it does and keep making things. And, you know, the part of you that's like, but wait, let me just fix this one last thing. That's always going to be a battle. Yeah. But we, we try to err more on the side of put things out and keep the, keep the, the, um, the train going. Yeah, for sure. Well, you mentioned a little bit about just, you know, using the cam girl, cam guy, uh, you know, format, uh, potentially as a, as a crutch or an easy production tool, and then very quickly getting away from that. And, you know, I certainly noticed that, that, you know, you're cutting to other angles and, you know, even within, uh, sort of the main webcam shot, you know, there, there's punch-ins and stuff that, uh, don't look like punch-ins. I, I, I guess I'm just, the question I'm trying to get to here is, uh, the, the technical side of it of like, how did you actually make this? Yeah. I mean, from the very beginning when it was just, a treatment and scripts um in the treatment i had like a visual treatment and that was that it would be anchored around the two cameras that you know look exactly like um you know if you're on skype or whatever um or zoom but that we would have to have these other angles and my whole thing was just that i was like if i have to watch two people have a conversation for even three minutes yeah. and it's just those two angles it's going to get super boring right. you know it will look exactly like zoom and that's not enticing that's not entertaining so i was very persistent about having the other angles so the way that we did it basically was that each person was recorded on an iphone and on their laptop uh, camera at the same time okay so the laptop computer is the sort of main angle that you're looking at straight on yeah and then we had an iphone that was off to another off sort of angle that gave us a sort of camera b right we would go through, uh, you know, go through a scene. Cool. Both of them are recording simultaneously. That's all well and good. And then once we have that footage, then as I worked with the editor, what I would have him do is that when we wanted a punch in, we wanted a close up of eyes or a mouth or something like that, is that we would then take a DSLR hmm. and he would put the footage up on his TV screen ah. and then shoot off of the TV screen to get that close-up footage. And one of the things I was really interested in was uh, from shooting off of a screen was that when you shoot off a screen, you start to get those scan lines. And to me, that, like, at this point in our exposure to digital, you know, uh, ephemera, scan lines almost read as something being more real. Mm. Because it's degrading the footage, it it sort of makes it a little bit more authentic in my opinion because it's not perfect. Yeah. And so like I really like that as a as a way to do a close up and to really start to add emotion to it. And then with the camera that we the iPhone that we had on the second angle the camera B, the iPhones tended to shoot better quality. They shoot they just do. They shoot better quality footage than the webcam. Sure. And so what I was using those for was that at every, in every episode, there's a moment of truth, I would say, for yep. each character where they express their true selves or uh, one layer of a mask drops. 
And that's when I would cut to the B camera, which is so much clearer and so much, you know, just sharper. The colors are, you know, more beautiful and everything. And so that it's a thing that like, I don't think most people notice, but in those moments of truth, you'll cut to that other angle. And now it's, everything's crystal clear. Mm. You can see the person for who they are. And then usually there's something that happens that pulls the mask back up. And then we cut back to the other angle. And now we're back to the slightly more degraded footage as it's, you know, uh, the performance has come back up. Right. That's interesting. Uh, are the actors setting both those angles? Well, I had a, um, me and uh, my DP, uh, Gall, we were working with them. And we're, as we're shooting it live, uh-huh. he was, you know, telling them, move it a little bit to the left, move it up. Can you do this? Can you but, turn but off that light? But all remotely. You're doing this like over Zoom. All remotely. Wow. Okay. Yes. I have never met any of these uh, actors wow. in person. That's <laughs> um, wild. Yeah. So it it was a it was a real process where like before we would shoot, we would tech scout their house, heavy air quotes, and basically they would just you know get on Facetime and walk around their apartment with us and be like, you know, I could sit here. This is my bedroom. This is my office. This is this. And then we were like, okay, cool. If you sit here and you open that window, what does that look like? Okay, yeah. cool. Can you turn off that light? And then we would send them like a care package from like Amazon with, you know, different lighting and different production design stuff that uh, my production designer, Miwa, she did a great job of like sourcing so much stuff. Yeah. Mostly from Amazon, honestly, weirdly, because they were they were the only ones who could get us the stuff quickly enough. Right. Um, but, you know, like to get a light that looks like it belongs in the space. But, you know, that's the light that we're using to get like, you know, a little bit of more depth, you know, or just address the whole place. We would do wardrobe remotely. Same thing. Uh, my costumer, uh, Sarah, she would source stuff from Amazon or Target or, you know, Fashion Nova. Shout out to Fashion Nova. They came through for us. <laughs> yeah. And then send stuff. And then we would do fittings over FaceTime. Wow. And then we would just go in and, and, and bang everything out. That's wild. Because, yeah, that was like that stood out to me that that every frame looked very designed like I, I don't think a regular audience member would necessarily pick up on that but just mm-hmm. you know as i was looking at it, i'm like wow like these locations really match the characters well and you know the mood is right the you know having colored lighting and things and the yeah. costuming and I, like that that's fascinating that it wasn't just because as you're talking about the casting process i'm like are you having to cast the location as part of it it sounds like the answer is yes Right. It was mostly we were cast. We cast the actors. And then once I was like, OK, this is this actor, is this person. Yeah. Then it was like, let's scout your apartment or wherever you are, because some people were upstate in, you know, or at a parent's house or at a wherever, you know. And then it was just like, what can we do to make the space match the character? You yeah. know, and, and there was a lot of set, a lot of set dressing and production design to get those those frames to look right. Right. But again, all on the actor to actually execute. You, you have a production yes. designer and wardrobe sending stuff, but then they've got to yes. kind of place it at wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was all of the actors did amazing jobs, not only in performance, but as grips and as, as you know, um, lighters, you know, like they were all in there, you know, like on ladders, like, hold on, let me attach this to this. And, you know. <laughs> I got my mom to help me do this, you know, uh, you know, my boyfriend's behind the camera holding a C stand or something, you know, That's like awesome. all wow. sorts of things. Yeah. That's yeah. so cool. Um, what was the actual, like the filming process then? I mean, you know, for three minutes of content, it, it sounds like a shoot must've been, well, I guess there's some pre-pro in terms of just, you know, scouting and, and fittings and stuff, 
But then the actual shoot must have taken a couple of hours as well, I would think. Yeah, I think most of the shoots probably averaged out about two hours. Okay. And basically that was like, you know, making sure lighting and everything and costuming was straight. And then there were a lot of technical issues to go through with iPhones filling up. And we got to wait for them to be offloaded and connections being lost and all that sort of stuff. But basically the way that we would film it is that we would all be in a Zoom call where it's me, the DP, the two actors, stylist, production designer, and then everybody would give their notes on everything, move this here, do this. Okay, cool. Then once we were ready to actually get into the scene, I would have everybody um, turn off their cameras except mm. for the two actors. Yep. And so they're just looking at each other. They're just performing against each other. But then I can jump in and just be like, hey, give me that, but a little bit bigger. Okay, yeah. cool. Another take. And so that would, honestly, it, it would all end up about two hours for each one. And a lot of that time was spent just on offloading hard drives or walking people through how to upload the content they just captured to, you know, the file server or whatever like that. Yeah. And then what What was the post process like? Um, my editor, um, Joe, he is in Australia. And so oh, wow. basically... We would upload it all to, you know, um, to, to his server. And then he would, you know, depending on what episode he would take, you know, a day, two days, three days, whatever, assemble a first cut. And then me and him would just go back and forth, usually at night, you know, because my night is his day. Yeah. And so, you know, I would jump on after work and we would just, you know, go back and forth. And he had a, a, um, a system where we could basically be in a Zoom call where it's me, him, and then the third sort of person would just be his screen. Uh-huh. So it was very reminiscent of sitting in an edit bay with an editor, you know, where he could scroll through and I'd be like, no, wait, what if we move this here? Are you seeing his timeline and all too, or just, just yeah, like a program yeah. feed? Okay. Gotcha. No, the third, the third person was like his, was his timeline. Gotcha. You know? Okay. So you're seeing um, it all. Nice. Seeing it all. Yeah. And so we would just work through it like that. And, you know, we, we just banged each one out and, you know, some of them went super fast. Some of them took, a lot longer to to really nail the right tone and everything yeah that's uh that's just a phenomenal story <laughs> like I, i'm so yeah. impressed with you guys for pulling it off and you know working remotely like that um how much of the the tech crew that you're working with you know your production designer and uh editor and all that are these all people that you've had relationships with in the past no um wow. my casting director was the only one who i had worked with before uh-huh uh, Allison and she was great. I'd worked with her on a short film and she'd gotten me some amazing actors. Um, and then on this one, again, she got me amazing people. Like every single actor was like more than I could dream of. Like initially I went to her and I was just like, Hey, I want to do this thing. Could you find me like people who are like straight out of like NYU, you know, and they're just like <laughs> bored. And she was yeah. like, no, I will get you real actors. And I was like, okay. <laughs> But everyone else was sort of like friends of a friend, you know, or people I had worked with and I'd be like, hey, you know, uh, could you do this? Oh, no, I can't do this. But I know homegirl. She can do this. Or, you know, my producer, Chris, would, you know, he would be like, oh, I know a great he got the RRDP gall. He knew gall. And so he was like, oh, I know this great DP. He'd totally be down for this. And I'm like, look at his book. And I'm like, are you sure he wants to do this? Because his book is way too good to, <laughs> to be directing people on the, you know, iPhone placement and such. But I think, you know, one of the cool things about quarantine was that people were down for the challenge of like, 
can I do this? Yeah. You know, and, and like, Hey, let's try it. You know, are there lessons that you learned on these shoots that you've either been able to apply, you know, going forward already or that you plan to? I, I, I think from a technical side, I would say I know, like, I understand how to do it now with the way that we did it, which was very sort of like we were misappropriating weird apps, remote viewing apps on iPhones and stuff. Yeah. But I'm sure now there are like legit apps that would help us do this much easier. Um, so those lessons, I don't know if I can really apply to anything else. I think that was very specifically early pandemic knowledge. Yeah. Um, but just directing people remotely, there were definitely a lot of lessons learned there. And just like, I, I, I found it surprisingly easy given that you don't have the opportunity to really like get to know people Mm. super well at first you know because usually you do a casting session and you're you know in a room and you can sit there and you know you talk to them and then even on the day of the shoot you know you've got time when cameras are being set up and you're just like okay hey so where are you from oh yeah i've been there once and it's at the other and so you're you're starting to build a rapport so that when you're actually shooting you can say hey I love what you're doing, but just try something totally different. You kind of don't have that rapport built up um, beforehand. But I, I found it, you know, maybe it was just super lucky that everyone was, all the actors were great and open to suggestion and direction. But um, it, it, it was surprisingly a little bit easier than I, I thought it would be. I would say that. Yeah. yeah. I, I've been interested in this time too that, you know, Zoom at first feels. There's an artifice to it that I don't like, and 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 that's still very off-putting to me. Like I, I've said this to other guests, but like I feel the need to perform when I'm on a Zoom yeah. call, you know, just to sit up straight and smile a little more, yeah. and you know, things like that. But there's also a, a really nice kind of focused intimacy that comes from only seeing someone, you know, from the the shoulders up, and mm-hmm. not having that whole body picture. And not having other distractions that you're really kind of looking in each other's eyes, you know, just as you were talking about, you know, sort of building that rapport and like what it's like in person. I wonder if there was anything, you know, if if you felt that intimacy, I guess, of, you know, just only being two heads (laughs) talking to each other. Yeah, I, I felt that definitely as we were shooting, especially like I'm very much a proponent of like you know, I'll do like a couple of takes that are exactly what the script is. Yeah. And then I'll do a take where I'm just like, you guys know what the beats are, but put it in your own words, go crazy. And generally off of that take, I'll start seeing things. Mm. And so I'm like, hey, so you, how you said that line with a sort of laugh, do the whole thing as if you think it's funny or do this or whatever. And when we're having those conversations, that's where I think you really feel the intimacy because there's nowhere else for the person to look. You know what I mean? Like they are totally focused on the words coming out of my mouth at that moment and nothing else can distract them. So I think maybe that's why it was easier to get variations in performance because you've got such a rapt attention when it's just, you know, two people. Yeah. It's a whole different world. Um, Yeah. I I wonder, you know, thinking about the content uh, in the stories too, and just the role the technology has played, you know, even before the pandemic and, you know, you mentioned, you know, Pornhub and things like that, but, you know, Tinder and and all those kinds of apps, you know, like I, I've been married for 10 years, 11 years, something like that. Um, but my wife and I've been together for like 16. So like, I mm-hmm. feel like I kind of missed a lot of that. Yeah. I don't know. I, I feel like you are making a commentary about sort of what where intimacy is in in you know 2020 2021 like what are your thoughts yeah. about the role technology has played in in how we 
how we date? I think, you know, technology, my opinion of it is always that it is neither good nor bad. It just enables us to be our true selves, mm. you know? And so like, to me, the question of like, in the, in the wide philosophical sense, are humans, you know, like, are people nice, good creatures? Or are we sort of evil and, you know, malicious, cowardly? I'm like, just look at the internet. Yeah. When you remove all sorts of accountability, do people, you know, just go to random people's pages and say, hey, you look great today? Yeah. Or do people go to random people's pages and go, hey, you look like shit. Right. You're a piece of garbage. I hate you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's what happens. And so I think it's just technology, you know, is when it's specifically when it comes to dating is, is, and, and sex is that it en enabled all of us to be 100% ourselves because you're doing it all from the comfort of your home yeah no one sees what you put in that little you know search engine um to a degree you can be so much braver and emboldened if you're going to go on tinder and you know you want to say some wild stuff to someone that you're potentially going to date or if you want to be wildly vulnerable yeah you know like both of those things are so much easier when it's just text on a screen and you type it real quick and before you can even hesitate you press the, the send button and now it's out there whereas if me and you were just sitting across from each other at a table if i'm you know have to say something super vulnerable i, I hesitate right. i sure. worry like what what's your response going to be because at the end of the day if i say something very vulnerable or super crass or anything in between if I say that in person, I have to worry you're going to, you might slap me. Sure. You might right. ridicule me, whatever, you know? But if I say that on, in a, on Tinder and you're like, holy crap, I can't believe you want to do X to my Y, yeah. I can always just X out right. and never see you again, you yeah. know? And so I, I think that ultimately ties back into the series as, as a whole in, in that the idea of like masks being dropped and performances being dropped is something that's facilitated by the technology, by the, the machines, you know? Yeah. And is that good? Is that bad? I, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't necessarily know if it's a good or bad thing. It just is to yeah. me. Right. Well, it's interesting too, because I feel like you, you touch on it in the sense of sex and intimacy of, you know, I, I have this need I'm going to pay you to help me get that need fulfilled, essentially. And I feel like that's happening across the board with digital technology right now, whether it's Uber Lyft or DoorDash yeah. or Instacart or whatever, just this kind of almost dehumanization of other humans that, you know, th these are people that are performing a task for you, whether it's, you know, fulfilling a kink mm -hmm. or grocery shopping or, you know, bringing you takeout, whatever. But it's so easy to do it all digitally that you forget, you know, again, it's like, I remember as a kid, like you, you would call the restaurant and say, yeah, I'd like to order a cheese pizza. Can you deliver it to one, two, three Elm street, you know, whatever. And mm -hmm. like, you'd have to talk to a person and they would answer and say, Hey, this is Lenny, you know, whatever. Yeah. Now it's just like, I hit a button in an app and say, I want a pizza. I want it at five o'clock. Here's the money. Here's the tip. And it just appears, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. I don't know, I guess, do you have thoughts on sort of where we're headed with, you know, the, the ability of technology, I guess, to dehumanize our interactions? Oh, no, I, I think that is totally a thing. And, you know, a lot of times people, we, we forget that, you know, when I press that button, it's just 
going to make a pizza arrive in 20 minutes magically that there were several people in that chain of events, you know, the guy or lady who made the pizza, the person who drove it over and delivered it, you know, the person who's working tech support at seamless or whatever, you know, but I I know for me, it's made me treat people. I I think it makes me treat people even better because I'm constantly aware of like, I don't want to, get into a lift, close the door, not, not say anything to, you know, the driver, get out and just pretend like you were a robot, you right. know, like, I'm like, it makes me have to go like, hey, dude, how's it going? How's your day? All right, you, you good? Okay, cool. Yeah, it's crazy. It's raining today. You know, like, it, I want to do that because I, I fear becoming that person who totally forgets that other people are involved in things. But I don't know if everyone has that same self-awareness and if convenience doesn't become the death of you know humanity not to be wildly dramatic but yeah (laughs) um i want to get back to your day job for a second too just as we're wrapping up and you know Mm -hmm. i feel like when i when i think about you know innovation in in filmmaking and, and tv and things like that so much of it is driven by advertising just in terms of, you know, the pace of cuts or the way things are shot, you know, there's just, there's so much money in these little 30 second spots that it ends up trickling out into the rest of sort of filmmaking vernacular and all. Like, I wonder you've been uh, in a couple of different agencies uh, in creative director roles. Like what are your thoughts on sort of the, the good side of advertising, I guess, and how, yeah, uh, yeah. how that affects, you know, everything else that we consume? I think, listen, I think it, advertising can totally be banal. It can totally be craven. It can totally be a million horrible things and derivative and all of that. And listen, most of the time it is. Yeah. Um, but at its best, when it functions at its best, I think what becomes great is that if you can tell an, an entire story in 60 seconds or 30 seconds, you know, like it takes the basically the art of the montage or the art of cinema in the sense of like, how do you convey information visually and sonically with the most efficiency? Yeah. Um, It takes that to the nth level. And, you know, the idea that there's, you know, commercials that I saw when I was 13 that are 30 seconds long that imprinted on my brain yeah right. not even so much just the product because i can remember some of those commercials and like i know it was a nike ad but i can't tell you specifically what shoe it was for um but the idea that those those things can imprint on your brain and they gave you joy or they were funny enough that you're still you know saying the line 10 years 20 years later or whatever that's amazing that's the reason that all of us get into telling stories or making film or, or whatever. Yeah. That's what I'm always striving for when, when I try to do advertising stuff, when I do advertising stuff is just trying to, again, is wrapping back around is that quality in the most concise, shortest form so that people ingest it and, you know, take it, take it with them. Yeah. For me in the role that I have as a creative director, I spend a lot of my time just thinking about, you know, the problem of whatever business, you know, that I'm working with. And a lot of times for me, I am less interested in the problem that the business has strictly as a business problem. But I'm like, what is the human root of this problem? Mm. You know, like, what is the thing that we're trying to, to touch in people, be it like 
culturally, societally, or experientially, or, or whatever. And those thoughts on, on those things get me to places of thinking about things that I would never have otherwise gone to. You know, like I worked on CoverGirl for a year and a half or so, and we were trying to relaunch CoverGirl. So I spent a lot of time thinking about makeup and what makeup means to women and like the myriad ways women can and men can deploy makeup and beauty and all of that. And that led me to thinking about so many things and led me to make a short film that I would have never come to if I hadn't for my day job spent months just digging deep into what mascara means and what, you know what I mean? Like, sure, and yeah. so I, I love that as a forced exploration of, you know, a different thing that I, you know, is outside of my normal purview. Yeah. It's, it's about the product, but it becomes about society <laughs> as you try to figure yes. it out and, and absent that prompt, it's probably not yes. a thought process you would have gone through. That That's wild. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. All right, there we go. Ray smiling. I am so interested in his background and expertise and advertising and how he blends that with his own filmmaking passion and short form content is where it's at nowadays. And there's a lot of ways to do it really, really well. And there are ways to do it really, really poorly. So I enjoyed learning a lot from Ray there. And I hope you'll check out his work. The latest is Khaki Is Not Leather, of course, which we talked about there. Go to khakiisnotleather.com. You can watch all six short films there for free. All right, real quick before we go, I want to tell you about Thursday's show. Sonia Manzano is going to be my guest. She played Maria for like 40 years on Sesame Street and actually was also a writer on the show. So we have a really interesting conversation about writing for children's television and how you gear certain stories to children and, you know, things like that. I learned a ton from her about that. She also has a new book out, which we're going to talk about, and she's going to preview a new series that she's actually producing for PBS this fall. So Sonia Manzano, Maria from Sesame Street, this Thursday, come back for that. I do new shows every Monday and Thursday, so hit the subscribe button and you will get the new shows right in your feed. And don't forget to sign up for my newsletter. Go to heathrosella.com and enter your email address. you get the newsletter every Sunday. We'll have Ray's episode and Sonia's episode written up next week, and I'll talk to you on Thursday. Stay safe.